My dear brethren, let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3 and the 21st verse. I want to build your faith and your hope this morning. And that comes by building your confidence in the Word of God, because faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Amen. I don't want to be very long this morning, and it will not be very deep, but I hope that it will stir your souls to know what you hold in your hands, and that is the precious words of the living God. Amen. Brethren, you have a book in your hands that cannot be broken. Amen. Every word of God is chosen by God and is placed there and it cannot be altered. If it is altered, it isn't Scripture, for Scripture cannot be broken. Any promise that you've ever read, I want you to be able to lay a hold of that promise at the end of this morning's sermon and never let go of it because you know that every word of it and every letter of those words is there by the inspiration of God. Amen. We have learned two verses in the past seven days by memory. Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Second Peter 1.21, for the prophecy came at an old time by the will of man. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Amen. The words in the book that you hold in your hands are given to us by God. Right. And there are times in your life where you are going to need to believe them with all your heart. There are promises laid out there that you can lay hold of and take them and claim them because God cannot lie and His Word cannot be broken. And so I want to take a route this morning to show you just how sure the Word of God is. In most pulpits today, the pastor's going to be reading from a version. There'll be a version in the PU Bible, and many of the people sitting in the chairs will have a different version. And all those versions will vary considerably in words. They create confusion, and they steal the faith and hope of God's people. And then when that preacher opens his mouth, he will say, this word here in the Greek or the Hebrew word that was translated, should have been translated. Or there are good scholars who maintain that this verse doesn't really belong here. Or this verse ought to be worded this way. And so the people of God leave. And they have nothing. They've been fed nothing but gravel. And I want to feed you the Word of God this morning so that you'll know that when you read the precious words of God, every word, every letter is important, and I want to pursue this plan in an unusual way. Look at 1 Peter 3.21. 1 Peter 3.21. I preached in passing this verse to you last Sunday evening. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I taught you last Sunday evening, and I want you to remember this. There's 31,165 verses in your Bible. This is the best verse 
about baptism in the Bible. Right, I taught you three things from this verse. It teaches us that a true baptism, a baptism that is godly, God's baptism. And brethren, I want to remind you there's only one baptism. Right. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 5 says, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Why, even in that expression, we have the proper order of baptism, don't we? Amen. Faith comes before baptism. We don't put baptism before faith. Right. As 95% of those that claim to be Christians do. There's one baptism, and it's God's baptism. And God's baptism has certain requirements. One of those requirements is that baptism has to be a figure. And we take that from the words... The like figure. Right. We take out what's in parentheses to find out what the figure is. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's baptism, the one true baptism, has to have a picture of a resurrection. It has to symbolize resurrection. And only immersion does that. That's why Baptists have the right mode of baptism. They bury people in water and they raise them up again. And therefore their baptism is God's baptism as far as mode. Because it shows a picture of resurrection. There is no resurrection. In fact, there's no burial in sprinkling or in pouring. Because no one is buried with a little dirt, sprinkled or poured on their forehead. They're put underneath, they're submerged, they're immersed, and they're raised again. We also see in this verse that it tells us that baptism does not put away the filth of the flesh. And we learn from that that baptism does not save us nor wash us from our sins in any legal or true or actual way right. or essential way. It is simply the answer of a good conscience. And so we have the design of baptism. Baptism is symbolic. Baptism shows a picture. Baptism doesn't actually save us. We are actually saved by Jesus Christ and Him alone. Amen. But baptism is a picture of that salvation. It does not put away our sins. And so we see that in this verse. And then we see that it's the answer of a good conscience. So a person, in order to be baptized, has to be old enough to have a conscience that is active and that is working in its baptism. Because by baptism, that conscience is answering God. And so obviously infants should not be baptized. And of course, the vast majority of those that have these rites with infants do so by sprinkling and pouring, and they do so in order to regenerate or to wash away sins, and therefore they have totally corrupted the ordinance of baptism as given by God. Right. And they've run into the teeth of this verse, 1 Peter 3.21 and they have violated all three requirements that it gives. No longer is baptism a picture of resurrection. No longer does it not put away the filth of flesh. They say that it does. Not No longer is it the answer of a good conscience. It's the appeal by godparents and parents that this child might have a good conscience someday. And so what have Bible versions done today? Bible versions have approached 1 Peter 3.21 and changed it three ways. There is an outline on the back table. It's an outline that I sent to all of you. It's an outline that I want you well established in. First of all, the like figure means there's two figures. There's one in verse 20, which is the ark, and there's one in verse 21, which is baptism. They change the like figure to be ark. The ark from verse 20 is the figure of baptism. 
so that baptism no longer has a figure of its own. Therefore, listen, we might as well lick our thumbs and press them on people's foreheads. That would be a baptism because water would have been applied. Once you take away the figure, so they corrupt the verse. They change the words so that instead of the like figure, do you know what like means? You know there's two, right? So that the second one can be like the first one. There's a figure in verse 20, it's the ark, and there's a figure in verse 21. And they're like each other because they both showed salvation. Brethren, if you're not in the Lord Jesus Christ like Noah was in the ark, you're not going to be saved. Right. And if you're not in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which baptism shows, you're not going to be saved. Amen. What else do they change? Those words, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, they change to be not the washing away of the dirt of the body. Well, if baptism doesn't wash away the dirt of the body, then I guess we could allow it to wash away sins, couldn't we? If we change it like they do. They corrupt the word of God. And brethren, when you go look at the variations in the modern versions, you'll find the 50 verses that have been deleted in the New Testament from the new versions. You'll find the 500 substantial deletions in words that they've made. But seldom will you look at a verse like this because no verse, no words are deleted. They're just corrupted. Right. And then it says the answer of a good conscience. And they change it to be the appeal of a good conscience. Or in a couple of versions, the pledge of a good conscience. The pledge for a good conscience. The appeal for. This is the answer of. Yes. Not the appeal for. Right. This is believer's baptism by the mode of immersion, not for salvation, but to testify to God that you're trusting Jesus Christ and His burial and resurrection alone for your salvation. Amen. That's what we believe, and this verse has been corrupted. Three ways. Horribly. Now, is it proper for us to go into a verse like this and trust the word like? Yes. Amen. The word figure? Amen. Should we really trust that? The like figure? Everyone else says we're wrong. Bob Jones University says we're wrong because they hold the New American Standard Version as the more reliable translation of the Bible. Should we still hold the like figure? Amen. Are you moved? Should we hold to the words, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, Amen. knowing that comparing spiritual things with spiritual, that is referring to sin? Amen. Are we going to hold to the words, it is the answer of a good conscience? Yeah. Is there a difference between the word answer and the word appeal? Amen. Is it a significant difference? Amen. Is there a difference in the prepositions of and for? Amen. Is there a difference in the expression, the answer of a good conscience, and the appeal for a good conscience. Absolutely. Should we hold to those words? Yep. Are we going to? Amen. I'm going to. Would you be willing to die for the proper mode, subject, and design of baptism based on 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21? Amen. Does God esteem His word that highly? Amen. Does he expect us to hold every word? Amen. I want to show you some fascinating examples from the word of God that show our Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul arguing from single words, establishing important doctrines upon single words right. to confirm your hearts that the way we use the word of God is indeed scriptural. I'm not going to give you examples of us arguing words like in 1 Peter 3.21. I've already done that. 
I want to prove to you that what we just did in looking at 1 Peter 3.21 is scriptural. And so that this pulpit had better be, by the grace of God and His Son Jesus Christ, different from other pulpits. Because we're going to hold to every word. And we're going to look at some examples of Jesus arguing from His Old Testament doctrine based on single words. And we're going to look at the Apostle Paul arguing doctrine from his Old Testament based on single words, just like we did, to show you that this is a scriptural way. Many would call us today nitpickers. Not only are we nitpickers, but we're arrogant. Because we're so arrogant to presume that we could be right to stick to that old-fashioned King James Bible in 1 Peter 3.21. Amen. Well, I think God's rather old-fashioned, too. Do you know how old He is? Ancient of days. Amen. He's the Ancient of Days, and He's from Everlasting. I want the old paths, brethren. I want the paths that God walked in. Amen. And I want His ways. Do you know what He tells me? Walk in my ways, and do not turn to the left hand or to the right hand. Amen. And that's the path we want to take. I want to show you how the Bible is used by God's ministers. Jesus Christ the servant and the minister of the circumcision, and the Apostle Paul, our Gentile Apostle. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Amen. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. We have a word that we can trust. Amen. That contains all the words that we can trust. Right. Galatians chapter 3. Paul wrote the epistle to the Galatians in order to save them from Judaizers who were teaching them that in order to be fully and finally saved, they needed to add to the work of Jesus Christ and they needed to add the works of the law of Moses and circumcision. And so the Apostle Paul spends six chapters denying that heresy and teaching that salvation is by Christ alone, apart from the law, that no man could ever be justified by the law, and by circumcision, that circumcision is passed away. That Jesus Christ is Savior alone. And one way he does this is to go back before Moses. And so he goes back before Moses ever had the law of God, all the way back to Abraham. Right. And, he, and he teaches in this third chapter, the promises of justification were made to Abraham. Now Abraham didn't have the law of God. Abraham had faith. Because it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. The proof and evidence of the faith of the righteousness of Abraham was by his faith. And so we come to Galatians 3 and verse 16. And here's Paul's argument. This is important theology Amen. to defend the doctrine of salvation. And he's going to argue it from a single letter of the English alphabet. No way. Amen. Paul didn't know English. It doesn't matter whether Paul knew English or not. I thought that the Bible tells us, for the prophecy came out in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Amen. Who do you think was the author of confusion at the Tower of Babel anyway? Right. The Lord God was. Amen. Anybody who wants to chafe and argue against my confidence in the new, in the King, not in the New King James Version, in the King James Version, 
let them bring forth their version in any language that I can't break with this passage. This is going to prove that you have the word of God. Right. Galatians 3.16 Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Please pretend with me for just a moment that you're in the churches of Galatia. And a man has stood up and is reading a letter from Paul. You don't have a New Testament. This is the first time you've ever heard the book of Galatians. Because it's being read to you as a personal letter. And in the middle of this letter, the Apostle Paul says, You know those verses that you've heard before from Genesis? Beginning in chapter 12 and verse 7. And running through chapter 24. Where God made promises. Promises. To Abraham. Do you remember? Where you've read those promises before, those promises were made to Abraham and his seed. And if you remember correctly, those of you who have your scriptures, go ahead and check it out. Paul is saying this, implying this. The promises were made to Abraham and his seed. It doesn't read back there in Genesis, the promises to Abraham and his seeds. It reads, and to his seed, singular, S-E-E-D. It doesn't read S-E-E-D-S. He bases his argument on a single letter, which makes the difference in the number of the noun. The promises were made to Abraham and his seed, not seeds, but his seed, and that singular seed was the Lord Jesus Christ. The promises were made to Abraham in Jesus Christ. And therefore, anyone who is aligned with Jesus Christ is the recipient of the promises made to Abraham. Because it says in verse 29 of this chapter, And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I'm not going to take the time this morning to develop each one of these arguments. I can develop these arguments as deeply as you want to go. We don't have time for that this morning because that isn't our purpose. My purpose from Galatians chapter 3 is this simple. The Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, argued important theological differences, salvation by grace or salvation by race, based upon a single letter of your English alphabet. I don't care how many letters it was in the Hebrew. The Hebrew is a dead language and has been for a long time. It's meaningless to all men. This book has meaning, and this book has bore the fruit of God's Holy Spirit for 400 years. Amen. And we all know that have been regenerated by the Lord Jesus Christ, that when we read this book, it is the words of the living God. And we know that when we go back to Genesis and look at the promises made to Abraham, what does it always say? It says seed. Amen. Do you know what it says in the New American Standard Version? Descendants. Descendants, plural. Can you fathom that? Let me ask you two questions. When Paul said the Old Testament must read Abraham and his seed, let's, I gotta ask you two questions about a committee of men with many degrees attached to their names that would sit at a table and sign off on a book, a novel like the New American Standard Version. Are they grossly ignorant? never having read the book of Genesis, or are they profanely wicked? 
Amen. Hating the word of God. Amen. Which one? There is no other alternative. Paul says, he saith not antecedes. Paul says you will not find a promise made to Abraham to his plurality of descendants. It will always be to his seed. The promises. You don't have to worry about whether you have the right promise or not because it says promises. The word of God, brethren. What promise do you like in it? What promise do you like in it? Do you like the promise, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee? Amen. Maybe that was. Maybe it doesn't read that way in the original. Have you ever thought about that? Maybe it doesn't read that way in the original. I want to tell you how it reads. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Amen. And you can hang on every word. You can hang on the singular. Do you know what the singular is? The. Do you like that? Amen. It doesn't say, I will never leave you. Do you know if it said, I will never leave you, you might think that you got lost in the crowd. Do you know what it says? I will never leave thee. Yep. Do you believe that? Amen. Personally? Right. That it's singular? That it's written to thee and not to you? You being a, being a plural pronoun and thee being a singular pronoun, which is lost in the modern translations by wanting to go to get rid of the these and the thous. Bless their hearts. They want to help us understand better by taking away the these and the thous. I happen to like the words, I will never leave thee. Amen. Because he's talking to me, not to you, when I'm reading it. But when you're reading it, he's talking to you and not to me. I like that. Then we both get together and tell each other how the Lord spoke to us, saying, I will never leave thee. And our hearts are united because the Lord will never leave us, because he will never leave us individually. All of it from Galatians chapter 3, my dear brethren, what is it? Gross ignorance or profane wickedness? Are they just stupid? Or are they evil? Amen. I'll tell you the solution. They're evil and therefore they're stupid. Amen. That is the solution. Right. They start out that they can sit in judgment on God. Right. They will read this. Hmm. Better be singular back there. And they'll go to Genesis and some ridiculous Hebrew manuscript that they dug out of some wastebasket someplace that no one's ever used in 2,000 years. They'll look at it and it'll have a plural because some pagan perverter of Scripture put a plural back there for the promises. And in their superstition for education, they'll make the Old Testament read plural. Okay, they've made a choice right there to sit in judgment on God's Word. Paul wasn't being quite that precise. We'll go ahead and put the, put the plural in Genesis. As soon as they make a decision like that, even close to that, God drops a sheet over their eyes and they can't see anything. Right. Because that's what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that God will make foolish the wisdom of this world, so much so that he says, where is the scribe? Where is the Bible translator? Where is the textual critic? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Isn't this simple? The promises were made to Abraham and his seed. He saith not antecedes. 
that tells you that every reading of a promise to Abraham in the book of Genesis had better be singular seed. But when you go back there in the New American Standard Version, you find descendants, plural. When you go back there in the New International Version, when you go back there in the New Revised Standard Version of 1989, you find offspring. Offspring is a collective noun that has an uncertain number. You don't know if it's singular or plural. That's just like Satan asking Eve, Yea, hath God said? Are you sure that it's singular or plural? We're sure, brethren, because Paul argues that way. And the point that I'm making is not the theology of Galatians 3, but that the theology of Galatians 3 was argued by an inspired apostle based on a single letter. And you have been shown that. And they have not. Do you know what they still do? They take up collections to send to the Middle East to a bunch of imposters claiming to be Jews. If they were Jews, they still wouldn't be God's children because God's children are His seed in Christ, not His seed descending from Abraham, but they're not even that. They're Gentile imposters, but they're taking up collections with all of their learned... What? Ever learning, but they're never able to come to a knowledge of the truth because the truth is that the promises were made to Abraham and Jesus Christ, and you are the beneficiaries of those promises. Brethren, here's how true it is. God told Abraham to look from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River, from the mountains of Lebanon and the river Euphrates to the Nile River, and he said, I will give you all this land as an everlasting inheritance. Did Abraham ever own any ground? Did he own enough to get his foot on? No. Then God didn't keep his promise, did he? Let's go on. Did God keep his promise? Amen. Did Abraham was Abraham looking at that sand? No. He was looking for a heavenly city, Amen. a better city, one that hath foundations. He was looking for heaven and a brother that has assembled with us several times is now in that heavenly country. Because by faith and by baptism, he identified himself with Jesus Christ. And he has found the heavenly country that Abraham sought for. Abraham considered himself a stranger and a pilgrim in this world. The promises are heaven. And they're fulfilled in Christ. Can you believe how carnally minded seminary professors can be? This is the word of God. It's so simple. He argues from a single letter. We have many more, but we're going to go much faster. I hope you like that one. I hope you'll always remember it. I hope you'll always remember it. Serious salvation doctrine being argued from a single letter of the English alphabet. Let's go to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. This is to confirm your faith so that when you read a statement in Scripture, you believe it. And your faith increases because you lay, you put your trust in every word. Amen. Because we can see that Paul put his trust in every word by inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Right. And when we have Scripture like we have and like they don't have, our New Testament agrees with our Old Testament. Right. Theirs doesn't, so theirs isn't Scripture. We've just broken every single book of theirs. Scripture cannot be broken. But we just broke it. Because in the New Testament it says, the Old Testament reads this way, but when you go back there, it doesn't read that way. We just broke it. Right. It can't be Scripture. That's so simple. 
But it's based on faith. And God has shown it to us without wasting all of our time sitting in monasteries on Wade Hampton Boulevard and other places pretending that we're wise. Because God will reveal it to us if we will humble ourselves off our high horses and get down and humble ourselves before His Word and say, Teach me. Show me. How did Solomon become so wise? By going to school? Are you kidding? Who was going to teach him? How did Solomon become so wise? He said, I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. And this thy so great a people need a qualified leader. Help me. When God helps, what happened to Solomon? From being a little child that did not know how to go out or to come in, he sat there and those two harlots came up with that dead baby and a living baby. Did he know what to do? Amen. Did the whole nation fear when they heard about his wisdom? Amen. Did all the kings of the east that had gone to school come just to sit and listen to the wisdom pour out of his mouth like a fountain? Yep. Right. One would raise his hand and he'd say yes. And the man would say, the king from the east would say, talk about trees. This is First Kings 4 right. and I'm not playing. Nope. Talk about trees. And Solomon would start to talk about trees. He could walk through the botanical gardens in uh, Columbia and do quite a job. Amen. Where did he get all that? God gave it to him. Brethren, there's a prayer in in Psalm 119. I want you to pray it for your pastor. I pray it. Open thou mine eyes that I might behold wondrous things in thy law. Amen. That's wisdom. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. It doesn't say if any man lack wisdom, let him go find some other wise men to teach him. It says if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and it shall be given him. Amen. Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, brethren, they picked on the Lord Jesus Christ about paying taxes earlier in this chapter. And they're standing there a little rattled by his awesome answer about paying taxes. And while he's standing there, he can't resist the godly temptation. And the godly temptation is to go over and ask them one more question. Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. Now, they're usually asking him. He's asking them, I want you to enjoy this. Right. Saying, what think ye of Christ? This promised Messiah of Israel, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. He saith unto them, how then doth David in spirit call him Lord? Saying, and this is from Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. (laughs) Brethren, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? I praise his holy name. There is no one in heaven or on earth like the Lord Jesus Christ. He took all the seminary trained men of his day and shut them up with the simplest of questions. They were so ignorant they could quote the Old Testament inside out. But they didn't know it. Right. He had to say so many times to them, you do err, not knowing the scriptures, even though they could quote it inside out, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you can translate it into 40 languages. 
There's a spiritual understanding of it, brethren, and the Lord Jesus Christ had it. And look at how he used it. He defended his deity and his lordship with one word from Psalm 110.1 by asking a simple question, why did David call the Christ his Lord if the Christ is just David's son? The Christ must be a whole lot more than just David's great-great-great-grandson because David called him Lord. From one word, an argument is made for Jesus Christ to defend his deity and his lordship from the single word Lord. So when we read a single word, put your trust in it. Amen. That it may be well with thee. I have a single word in that little clause. Well. Where am I taking those words from? Ephesians 6, 3. Honor thy father and thy mother. Verse 2, actually. That it may be well with thee. Can you trust that word well? Amen. Yes, you can. It'll be well with thee. I like that singular pronoun, too. Again, it'll be well with thee. Amen. You're not going to be blessed by someone else's obedience. It's going to be by yours. Amen. To parents. The reason I'm doing this is for you to lay hold on the Word of God and love. Every sentence you find and every word is yours, and it is sure, right. so sure, that Jesus here, knowing that they knew the Scriptures, what think ye of Christ? They said he's the son of David. He said, why did David call him Lord? And they didn't dare. They didn't know what to do with that. David called Jesus Christ Lord, the Christ of Israel Lord, because he was also his God. Amen. Let's go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Remember, my purpose is not the deity of Jesus Christ from Matthew 22. My purpose is not baptism from 1 Peter 3, necessarily, although that is there. My purpose is not salvation by grace rather than race in Galatians 3. My purpose is... Proverbs 30 and verse 5. Every word of God is pure. Every word of God is pure. My purpose is Matthew chapter 5. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And he says, till heaven and earth pass away, not a single jot or tittle will pass from the law. The smallest letter and the smallest marking of a letter in any language, will not pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And you can rest on it, and you better be obeying every single one of them, because any man that breaks even the smallest and least of these commandments is the least in the kingdom of heaven. Amen. The smallest parts the Lord has told us to depend upon and to believe and to practice. And so we come to John 10 and in verse 29, Jesus has said, My Father which gave them me, talking to Jews about the fact that God is his Father. And he says in verse 30, I and my Father are one, making himself the Son of God. Then the Jews took up stones to stone him. In verse, 33, verse 32, Jesus said, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? I like his reasoning. What are you stoning me for? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. So Jesus is going to defend himself against the accusation of blasphemy. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? That is Psalm 82 and verse 6. It does say that there. And over there, it's using the word gods. 
small g, four letters, gods, to describe the rulers of the people, the priests, the Levites, the judges, the elders of Israel, because authority is valued that highly by God. Someone in a, in a position of authority is called a god. I've been down to see Sheriff Johnny Mac Brown. He's no longer sheriff. I've told him and his deputies that come in our restaurant that in our opinion, and in God's opinion, they're gods. Because that's what the Bible says. Now, they get a rather confused look on their face when they see that kind of reverence for their office. They like people to address them as sir or mister or something like that, but to be called gods. But that's how God exalts authority. And so Jesus is going to reason from the fact that a word like God's is applied to just mere magistrates or rulers. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, ye are gods. If he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, that's all they had, was a little message from God, the rulers of the people, as designated by the law of God, and the scripture cannot be broken. That right there is so powerful, the word gods had better be in the Old Testament. And it is. The word gods had better be there. Because if it's not there, it's not Scripture. For Scripture cannot be broken. See, I've already shown you from Galatians chapter 3 that every other Bible version in this country is broken. Because the Old Testament didn't read as the New Testament said it better read. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the Scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest because I said, I am the Son of God? You're being unfair in your use of Scripture because your own law says that mere magistrates, all they have is a little bit of authority from the law of Moses. You call them gods, and God called them gods. What have I done that's so horrible calling myself the Son of God because the Father hath separated me and sanctified me and sent me into the world as the Messiah? What have I done that's so horrible? That isn't the point. It's a precious point, because it's the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the point is, notice his argument. It's from a single word, God's. And he is arguing, if you go check it out, men, you will find that it doesn't say back there, the rulers of the people. It won't say back there, the lords of the people. It won't say the masters of the people. It will say, the gods. It will have the word God's. And so I called myself the Son of God. I haven't done anything that harmful. Your own law uses it to describe mere magistrates, and I am the Messiah sent by God. The argument from a single word. Look at Hebrews 8. Hebrews chapter 8. We've got to shift gears, brethren. Hebrews chapter 8. Oh, love the Word of God. Read every word of it. Every word of God is pure. It's to you. Every word, lay hold on it. This will build your faith. Every promise. What promises are precious to you? No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly? Do you like that little word, no? No good thing. That's an important little two-letter word. That is the word of God. No good thing. Don't you try to reason around that. No good thing will he withhold. And that's a good thing, brethren. 
No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13. Now let's get verse 9, 8. Hebrews 8, 8. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Here Paul is quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31. He's quoting a prophecy that Jeremiah made that God was going to have a new covenant. There was a covenant that God established with Israel at Mount Sinai with Moses. And there was going to be a new covenant because the first covenant didn't work out very well. It wasn't designed to work for anyone's salvation because a new covenant was coming. And so Paul quotes from Jeremiah 31. He puts the words down in Hebrews 8.8. 8, and you can see that Jeremiah used the word new. So now we come down to verse 13 where Paul's going to make an argument based on the word new. We have Hebrew Christians. They were once under the old covenant. Paul is trying to get them fully converted and keep them under the new covenant. And so what he's going to do is show them that old covenant is trash. You say that's strong language. I know. Let's look at Hebrews 8.13. In that he saith a new covenant... Notice how Paul reasons the very way we, in that he saith, we say, in that he saith, the like figure. Amen. We're following an apostolic method of Bible teaching. Paul says, in that he saith, a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now he's going to mess with that word new. The word new means that any covenant that it's replacing is old. Now, if something is old, look at the implications he draws from the word new. Now, that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. It's trash. It's old. It's no longer good. It's to be discarded. And he argues that all from the word new. First of all, new means that the covenant that you were under is old. And if it's old, then it needs to be thrown away. It's about to vanish away. It's decaying and waxing old. It's decaying. It's rotting. It's going away. All from the word new. Hebrews, don't you move in your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ because even your prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 31 said that God was going to make a new covenant. And if God said a new covenant, then that meant the covenant that you were under from Moses is an old covenant. And if it's called old, then it's to be thrown away Right. from a single word. I want you to trust every word of God. Every word of God is pure, brethren. Amen. I want you to go over a few pages to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. The apostle spends the whole book of Hebrews trying to show the Jews that the Old Covenant and its connection to Moses, Mount Sinai, and the law has been passed away. The tabernacle and the altar and the cherubims and all that were just signs of better things to come. And so he's wanting to establish these Hebrew Christians in the New Covenant. We saw one argument from Hebrews 8 based on one word. Now let's look at one based on three words. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 26 These are words describing the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, whose voice then shook the earth. Do you all understand that? When God spoke from Mount Sinai, He shook the earth. The people were petrified of that voice, whose voice then shook the earth. But now He hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth, 
the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Amen. Paul quotes from the book of Haggai, where it talks about the desire of all nations coming, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that God is going to shake the heavens and the earth. Now, brethren, Haggai prophesied about that 500 years before Jesus came because that shaking of heaven and earth took place when Jesus came. It's not something we're waiting for. And this shaking is a spiritual shaking because it's a shaking of the worship of God so that all the things that aren't fastened down fall off. Do you know what fell off? The Levitical priesthood. Do you know what fell off? The law of God as a way of living compared to the New Testament. Do you know what fell off? The altar, the sacrifices, the cherubim, circumcision. It all fell off because God shook the heavens and the earth. And what was left was the kingdom of the New Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the the next verse says, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Because when God shook and all all the ridiculous stuff floated away, what was left was the essential elements of worshiping God and His Son, Jesus Christ, which is the new covenant. We have received a new kingdom which cannot be moved. Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago. Don't you ever go into Hebrews 12 and think that it's talking about some fairyland in the future. This is something 2,000 years old. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. His whole argument's on three words. Yet once more. That means there's only one more shaking. So that whatever is left after this shaking is what's going to stay forever. We have it. We have the new kingdom, the new covenant, the new testament of our Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight we'll take a cup and we'll say this cup is the new testament in my blood. It's the last one there is. We'll just be a different location. It'll be in heaven. From three words, brethren. I bet you haven't read your Bibles that carefully. When you're blowing through those three chapters a day and checking off your chart, are you reading it this carefully that when you find the words, yet once more, you knew there was theological implications in them? Yet? Once? More? Amen. Amen. What promise do you love in the Word of God? The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. You like that promise? Lay hold on it, brethren. It's not a mistake. The Scripture cannot be broken. Right. I love this. Oh, I hope you all understand. I can't take any more time on it. I hope you understand about that shaking. It was a spiritual shaking of things in heaven and earth so that all the trash can float away. And that trash was the ridiculous... You say, that's not being very nice. Well, Paul said they were beggarly elements. Right. What a way to worship God when you worship Him with the senses. How pitifully weak your senses are. We worship now in spirit and in truth. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. I ran out of time, Brother Leon. If you were to go up a few verses in Hebrews chapter 12, you'd find in verses 22 through 24 that new covenant that we're now united to. There was a collection in heaven, the general assembly, is from Hebrews 12, 22 and 20 through 24. The general assembly which is above, the spirits of just men made perfect, Amen. and an innumerable company of angels. Galatians chapter 4. Watch Paul play with some words in verse 9. But now, after that ye have known God, 
or rather are known of God, Amen. how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage. Notice Paul play with some words. But now, after that ye have known God, transitive verbs have a voice. They're passive or they're active. Now, when you're knowing God, that is these Galatians doing the knowing and having the knowledge of God. And Paul says, describing their situation as children of God converted and in the churches of Galatia compared to their old way of life. He says, but now after that ye have known God, that being the big change, he says, "Mm -mm, that's not good. Or rather, this is better, known of God. Amen. And brethren, is there sweetness in that or not? Amen. Amen. We have watched a man in the last couple of weeks depart this life who wasn't sure what he knew the last couple of weeks mentally and what he could express verbally. I want to tell you something, though. The knowledge that gives him entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is the knowledge of God, of him, not his knowledge of God. Hold your finger right there and flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19. What a difference, brethren. Paul is giving us a, some sweetness, some honey, a jewel in playing on the voice of a verb. Right. Is, is the difference us knowing God or is it rather God knowing us? Amen. Right. Isn't the chain that brings about our salvation initiated with God's knowledge of us, for whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate. And from that predestination, we end up all the way at glorification in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. For whom He did foreknow. 2 Timothy 2.19 Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. The second half of that verse is taking up a different subject. I want you to have the first half of this verse. Do you know what the key is to your salvation? That God knows you. The foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are His. Amen. In Ephesians chapter 1, it doesn't say that we accept the Beloved. It says that we've been made accepted in the Beloved. There's a huge difference there. The whole world is is creating these fleshly decisions for Jesus where they all accept Jesus, but that isn't what our eternal salvation turns upon. Our salvation turns upon God accepting us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6. When we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, the horrible words will not be, you didn't know me. The horrible words will be, will be, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. True. Do you know what Paul, how Paul gives us all of that? Playing? Spiritually playing. Do you think the Holy Spirit could have said it that way the first time? Listen, brethren, think. Galatians 4.9. Why did he correct himself in it? To lift up his grace and put it up there and let you see it. That it's not really us knowing him, it's him knowing us. That it's the basis for our salvation. He wanted you to take a look at it. 
Yea, rather, we are known of God. What a blessing. Paul argues that from the voice of a verb. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, verse 31. Matthew 22, 31. The Sadducees denied three things. Angels, a human spirit, and the resurrection. The Sadducees denied three things. Angels, they did not believe there was any immaterial things. No angels, no spirit of a man. This is it. You die, it's all over. Sounds like Jehovah's Witnesses today. You die, you're annihilated. Nothing else to it. No big deal. They denied angels, spirits, and the resurrection. They come to Jesus, attacking him in the doctrine of the resurrection. He handled them two ways. I'm going to deal with the second way that he handled them. Verse 31, But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God? Now these men had read their Old Testaments. Have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That was said to Moses 300 years after Abraham died. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Amen. That's just a principle that they understood and everyone accepted. God would not be the God of someone that had died and was annihilated and no longer existed. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. Astonished. Do you know what he's saying? God told Moses, I am right now in the present tense with this present tense two-letter verb to be am. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. Now, how could he be in the present tense the God of three men who were dead if the Sadducee heresy of no spirit was true? It was impossible. And they knew these words were true because these are famous words spoken to Moses. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amen. There must be a spirit. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must be alive somewhere. And the Sadducees didn't have a word to say, did they? Can we find any answer from the Sadducees? No answer. And the people were astonished at his doctrine. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of Clarence Cornell. Right. Is. Present tense. Amen. Brother, I had this message picked out for several days. And yesterday I thought to myself, should I preach something differently? And I went back and I looked through it and I said, wow, I got promises to Abraham of heaven. I've got an innumerable company of angels in heaven. I've got him being the God of a dead Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they're alive in heaven. There's plenty right here in the promises of God. And his Amen. words lay hold on these words, I am. You want to really lay hold on I am? Then turn to the last one, to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Jesus Christ destroyed the doctrine of the Sadducees with one statement made to Moses with a little two-letter word, the present tense, verb to be, I am the God of Abraham. Abraham had been dead a long time. 
Now we have the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 8, dealing with some who said they believed on him, but who, when pressed, didn't really believe much. Jesus said in John 8, 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Amen. He didn't say, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I was. That would have been true. In the beginning was God, and the Word was with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right. He didn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Do you know what he laid claim to in John eight fifty eight? What every Jehovah's Witness is going to wish they had seen right. and believed. That he was the eternal God. Right. I am that I am. Jesus claimed to be, I am that I am. And the whole argument of John eight fifty eight. look, the Jews understood it. Do you think the Jews understood it? The Jehovah's Witnesses don't understand it. But the Jews did because verse 59 says, then took they up stones to cast at him. And do you know where he was? In a place that usually was not given to stonings. He was inside the temple. Right. They considered that gross blasphemy. And it's all. On the present tense verb, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Give God the glory. Amen. You've, got a, you've got 66 books contained in those chapters. There's 1,189 chapters and 31,165 verses. And you can count on them. And you can lay hold on every single one of them. And every word in those verses is yours from God. We memorized two verses last week, and I don't want those verses to just be rote memory. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God gave us words of His promises to us, of what He wants us to do for Him, of what He's got laid up in store for us. I hath not seen nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. 1 Corinthians 2.9 You want a promise to lay hold of? Lay hold of that one. You haven't seen what God has for you. That's a promise of God. His word is true. At a time like the Carnell family has had, at a time like you may have had this past week in some other way, you can rest on the word of God. And whatever promises you find there, make them your own and trust every word of them. The method that we use in this church if others want to attack it, let them. When we go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, and we pick on words like figure, answer, of, filth, flesh, resurrection, it's because we're following the methods of Jesus Christ and His apostles. Right. You defend those methods, thank God for those methods, and pray for the Lord to continue to show things to your pastor that He can teach you, I preach this this morning for this purpose. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Amen. I want your faith to be strengthened so that when you read the Word of God, you can lay hold of those promises and lay hold of eternal life, and so that your hope is not a weak hope, but a patient waiting for what's going to be revealed. Right. May the Lord bless the preaching.
of his glorious word. Amen. Amen.